Last week we talked about Jesus' call to us to be disciples. He calls every, everyone to follow Him as His disciples. Well, this word disciple, we use it a lot. We talk about it. We talk about being a disciple, discipleship. What does the word disciple mean? Well, some translations will translate it follower. Sometimes it's referred to as a, a learner, a student, a pupil, an apprentice. And I got to think about all those different words we could use to describe what it means to be a disciple. Follower is a pretty good one. You know, we talk about following Jesus, but because of social media, the word follower has kind of been watered down, right? I mean, we follow lots of people, right? If you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you follow all kinds of people. So that word follower may not be as strong a word as it used to be. And we think about talking about a disciple as being a, a student, a pupil, a learner. Well, that just kind of makes you think of school. And who wants to do that, right? Teachers, right? Who wants to do that? So maybe that word doesn't work quite as well for us. So I like the word apprentice. A disciple is an apprentice. Now, one of the reasons I like the word apprentice is because the word apprentice carries a relational meaning with it, right? If you're an apprentice, that means that you spend time one-on-one -on -one with someone who's a master in their craft, in their skill. They have an area of expertise. And when you're an apprentice, you spend time with that master and you watch that master closely. You learn by doing. You pick up from them their little tips and tricks. But more important than that, you pick up their philosophy. Their passion begins to become contagious with you. An apprentice wants to learn to become like their master teacher so that they do what they do the way they do it. In fact, if you, you know... See somebody who's an, a musician or an artist or some sort of a craftsperson that maybe is an apprentice of a famous person who's done that. You might even be able to tell who they follow, who their, their master was, because they'll retain some of that style. In the culture of ancient Judaism, a rabbi was a master of the Scriptures. He was a master of the Old Testament law. And their disciples, their apprentices, well, they already knew the law. Before you could be a, a disciple of a rabbi, you already had to basically memorize the Torah. You knew the law. So you weren't following your, your rabbi to learn the law. You were following your rabbi to learn how to live out the law the way that they did. You wanted to learn their interpretation of Scripture. You didn't want to just know what the rabbi knew. You wanted to become like the rabbi. You wanted to live and walk and talk and teach like your rabbi. In fact, there were two predominant images in Jesus' day of this rabbi-disciple relationship. The first was the image of sitting at the feet of the rabbi. And the second was walking in the dust. Of your rabbi. Now, to sit at the feet of your rabbi implied that you were literally sitting and listening and absorbing their teaching. And we see this in the New Testament. We see Jesus doing this a lot. In fact, in that culture, it's sort of the opposite of what we would do. Um, if we were back then, I would be the one sitting down today, and you guys would be standing. That's what you did. So let's try that for the rest of this sermon. Can we do that? <laughs> I didn't think so. Uh, so, so literally, but, but sometimes you'd be in a setting like inside of a house, and so you would sit at the feet of your rabbi. We do see this, for example, when Jesus is in Lazarus' house. 
Remember, and he is, uh, Martha's in the kitchen cooking lunch. And what's Mary doing? Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. We also see this used when Paul talks about how as a Pharisee, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a famous rabbi. That means that he put himself under the teachings of that rabbi. So to sit at a rabbi's feet was to learn their teachings, learn what they believed and, and, and what they taught. But the more powerful image is this image of walking in the dust of your rabbi. So again, think about it. You're in ancient Israel, Jesus' day, all those nice paved roads, right? No. Dusty roads, right? Dry, dusty roads. So to walk in the feet of your rabbi means that you are walking and living day to day so closely with your rabbi, going where he goes, eating when he eats, sleeping when he sleeps. You are constantly with him in this close day-to-day relationship, watching how he lives his life, how he responds to adversity, how he handles different situations according to God's Word. And you're literally being covered in his dust as you're walking with him. And so the Bible likes to use this image of walk, walking, to talk about how we live as Christians. The Bible talks about our lives as our walks. We're told to walk in the way of the Lord. We're told to walk by faith, not by sight. To walk in the Spirit. To walk closely with Jesus. We even use the phrase today, you gotta talk the talk and walk the walk. Paul often writes about our spiritual walk. He talks about writing, uh, walking in the light of the Lord or walking according to God's Word. And that language comes from this idea of the rabbi-disciple relationship. We are walking in the dust of Rabbi Jesus. And so discipleship is a journey. It's a path. And Jesus said that He didn't just come to point out the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way to God. So Jesus is both the rabbi that directs our feet down the paths of righteousness, and He is the very path of righteousness that we are to walk. So when we think about Christian discipleship, let's think of it in terms of this relational journey with Jesus. You're on a journey with your Master. And this journey has two dimensions. It has an inward dimension and an outward dimension. I want us to look briefly at these two before we move on. The inward journey of being a disciple is the first dimension. We, we talked about this last week, that inward journey of being a disciple. That's our own personal spiritual journey to think and to be and to act more like Jesus. It's that process of sanctification whereby the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transforms us from the inside out so that we become conformed to the very image of Christ. We learn to think like Jesus and we have greater faith and trust in Jesus. We learn to act like Jesus, to do the things He did, to live the way He lived, to, to walk in His footsteps. And we learn to be more like Jesus as we take on His character, or what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, begins to develop within us. Biblical knowledge feeds faith. And that faith translates into action which in turn transforms our character to be more like Jesus. And this kind of lifestyle, it's like a loop. It feeds right back in. So that the inward journey of discipleship should always result in an outward journey. 
So that inward journey of being disciples should then lead us on an outward journey to make disciples. That's what I want us to talk about today. That outward journey. Remember last week Jesus said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The point of following Jesus and being transformed by Jesus, the point of being disciples is always to then go out and make disciples. That's the outward journey. And without the outward journey of making disciples, the inward journey of being disciples usually leads to self-centered, self-satisfied, stagnant Christians. We become stunted in our spiritual growth. I've used this example before, and it's such an apt one. It's the difference between the Sea of Galilee, there in northern Israel, that is teeming with life. That's where Jesus and the disciples are always fishing. You know, all those stories in the Gospels, the disciples fishing, they're hauling in all these nets of fish. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's teeming with life. Well, down at southern Israel, you have the Dead Sea. It has no life. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Nothing can grow there. Nothing can live there. What's the difference between those two? Well, the Sea of Galilee has outlets. It has water that comes in. It gets a lot of rain and storms. But it has outlets, especially its major outlet, the Jordan River. And where does the Jordan River flow? Into the Dead Sea. And guess what? The Dead Sea has no outlet. That water goes nowhere. So it sits there. It bakes in the sun, it evaporates, it draws out all the salt from the underlying rock, and so nothing can live there. It only takes in. It never gives anything out. And Christians and churches that only focus on taking in, you know, and that can be studying the Bible, which is a good thing. That can be fellowshipping and getting together with each other as church members and Christians, which is a good thing. It can be going to conferences, which is a good thing. It can be having worship services that are majestic and powerful. That's a good thing. But if that's all we're focused on is what we get and receive, then we end up being like the Dead Sea. There's no life, only stagnation. We need both the inward journey of being disciples and the outward journey of making disciples if we want to have a life with God that is vibrant and healthy and growing. There needs to be a balance between worshiping God and serving others. There needs to be a balance on growing spiritually with other Christians and going into the world to win others to the Lord. You have to have all of those to have a balanced journey of discipleship. Just as Jesus' original call to the disciples, we looked at last week in Mark 1.17, just as it inward, perfectly describes that inward journey of thinking, acting, and being like Jesus, so Matthew 28.18-20, what we call the Great Commission, perfectly describes the outward journey of making disciples. So I want us to look at the Great Commission this morning. And I know some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, David, how many sermons have you preached on the Great Commission? And you know what? I'm going to keep preaching sermons on the Great Commission until this baptistry is being used every Sunday. Okay? Until we get it. So for some of you, this is new stuff. For some of us, it's a refresher. But for all of us, it's something we need to be reminded of daily. So Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You can follow along in your copy of the Scriptures or on the screen. These are Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew. Right before He ascended... To the Father in heaven, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, you can think of this Great Commission this way. And again, you've heard me say this before. It's one command with three principles and two promises. And I want us to look at that again this morning in a little bit of a fresh way. One command. Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, that's the Greek word there. All, in other words, all peoples of all varieties and backgrounds. And this is clearly an imperative. You read it in the Greek. It's the only imperative in this entire passage. It is the one command that is given here. And this command is one that God expects us to follow. In fact, Jesus repeats this command many times in many ways throughout the Gospels. In Mark 1.17, we looked at last week. Like I said, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Implicit in that call to follow Him is the call to go and make disciples. But then we also see in Mark 16.15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. And then in Luke 24, 47, Jesus said, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This command to go make disciples was so important, it's mentioned in every gospel and the book of Acts by Jesus. He speaks it. But Jesus did more than just command this. He also modeled it for us. Jesus' entire ministry was about going, proclaiming, and making disciples. And think about it. If we're really His disciples, if we are His apprentices, then shouldn't we learn from His example and want to do what Jesus did? And if Jesus was sent to preach the gospel and make disciples, if we are really His apprentices, shouldn't we also be going and proclaiming the gospel and making disciples? You know, we often talk about wanting to know God's will for our life. What is God's will for my life? Well, the Great Commission tells you plainly what God's overarching will is for your life. That you are to go about your life intentionally to invite others into this apprentice relationship with Jesus. And then to help them connect with a community of apprentices of Jesus, the church. And then teach them how to live in the way of the Master. In other words, we should be apprentices who are teaching other apprentices the ways of Jesus. Are you doing that? If you're doing that, then you're living within the will of God. God, you're being obedient. If you're not doing that, then you're living outside the will of God and you're being disobedient. I don't mean to be blunt, but it's that simple. One command to make disciples. But what does it mean to make disciples? Again, what does that mean? We have to understand what that, what that means. Well, it means that we have one mission. We have one mission. There's one mandate here. Make disciples. All the verbs in the Great Commission, go, baptize, teach, are there to modify the imperative. They're there to tell us how to complete our mandate. 
So while our church has a, has a distinct context of ministry, and you're going to hear some about that tonight, if you come at 5 o'clock to the Fellowship Hall, we have, a, we have a distinct context of ministry. Thompson, Georgia, McDuffie County, Georgia, that is our, our distinct context. And while we have many different programs and ministries, which we'll talk about some tonight as well, everything we do here and around the world must be for fulfilling this one mission, to make disciples. We are called to spread Christ's rule on earth through making disciples, through sharing the good news of the King who conquered death and calls all of creation to submit to His rule and reign. That's what we're to do. How do we do it? Well, to put it simply, we tell other people about Jesus. We call them to follow Him. And we help them along the journey of becoming more like Jesus. So let's look at those three verbs in the passage, these three principles for how we make disciples. The first is go. Go. We invite people to Jesus. It's that simple. We go and invite people to Him. It's pretty straightforward. It means that we must do more than just pray for others to go. Like Ben said, the call is for us to go. Now, don't get me wrong, prayer is essential. Those of you that were at the Brotherhood meeting Monday night heard uh, David Miller talking about mission work in, in uh, Guatemala, and he said that prayer is not just nice, prayer is a necessity. And he shared some stories that made it very clear why prayer for missionaries is a necessity. It's a necessity for all of us, amen? So yes, prayer is essential. That's why Paul often asked others, pray also for me that wherever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, which, by the way, is a great prayer for each of us as we go to share the good news of Jesus. What a great prayer to ask God to give us the words that we need. But Paul just didn't pray Paul put feet to his prayer. Paul actually went. He actually went and preached the gospel and won the lost and discipled people and planted churches. As a church, we pray for missionaries. We just finished today our week of prayer for North American missionaries. And that's a great thing to do, but we can't stop with praying. Go also means that we can't stop with giving so that others can go. And again... Giving our tithe and offerings is, is essential for the spread of the gospel around the world. In fact, it's commanded by God in the Bible for us to be a part of His work spreading the gospel around the world. But if we stop at just giving so others can go, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Go means that we, we've got to go more than just once or twice or occasionally. Now, our church does a great job of providing opportunities throughout the year for people to go. We, we send people to go to Honduras and West Virginia and Gatlinburg nearly every year. We send people to go with disaster relief. We have local opportunities. We go locally through Mission McDuffie and Vacation Bible School and Upward Basketball and Trunk or Treat and Drive Through Nativity and the Easter Egg Hunt. Those are great ways that we can go into the community to love people in the name of Jesus and share the gospel with them. And we want everyone to be involved in at least one of these opportunities every year. Everybody here should at least do one of those every year. But again, there's a danger that, that, that I think, well, I've done my one and done. I've done it. I've done it. I helped with Easter egg hunt. I went on a mission trip somewhere. And I feel like I've accomplished the Great Commission. That's like brushing your teeth one time and thinking, I'm I'm good. 
No, it's something we must do every day. In fact, that Greek word translated go carries with it the, an, an idea that's often not, not expressed in the English translations. It's the idea of continually going. So a better translation could be go and keep on going. Go and keep on going to share the gospel and make disciples, not in a one-time or occasional sense, but living every day as if you are a missionary to this community. Living daily as a missionary where you live, work, shop, play with eyes and hearts open and ready for those opportunities God's going to give you to build a relationship with someone that could lead to a gospel conversation. Go. Secondly, the second principle is we need to baptize. And to baptize means that we not only invite them to Jesus, but we involve them in a local church. Being baptized means a couple of things. It means that you have made a profession of faith in Jesus. You've turned away from your sin. You've trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. You've received His free gift of eternal life. It means that you're choosing to identify yourself as an apprentice, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And you've chosen to identify with the family of faith, with the church. Baptism is the way that we obediently show others that we've received new life in Christ. And guess what? Baptism, y'all, is not an option. It's not just a nice little side option for following Jesus. It's the first act of obedience to our rabbi, to our master and our king. Jesus was baptized, not because He needed to be, but as an example for us to follow. So once again, if you're really an apprentice of Jesus Christ, shouldn't you follow your master's example and be baptized as well? I want to ask you this morning, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know you've given your heart to Him and you've never been baptized, what's holding you back? From that simple act of obedience, from that declaration of your faith in Jesus. I'm convinced that if you can't stand in front of a church full of Christians who are going to celebrate your relationship with Christ and be baptized, how in the world are you going to share the gospel with a world that's against Him? But being baptized is also a way that we unite with the body of Christ, the family of God. When Jesus tells us to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, He's instructing us to incorporate every disciple into a community of disciples who identify themselves by the name of the triune God. True Christian discipleship cannot happen apart from a local New Testament church. Because Jesus didn't just call individuals to follow Him on their own. He called a group of disciples to follow Him. He often taught about how His disciples are to treat each other. In fact, Jesus said the key mark of discipleship is how you love other disciples. Well, how in the world am I supposed to show the world I belong to Jesus by the way I love other Christians if I'm not in community with other Christians, right? Discipleship can only happen in the context of the local body of Christ. And most specifically, really, discipleship happens best in a small group. You think about it, Jesus did the bulk of His teaching, the depth of His teaching, wasn't to the crowds, it was to the twelve. And then with the three, with Peter, James, and John, Jesus even went deeper. 
It's not sitting here in the sanctuary that we really build relationships with other believers and we get to know people and we can share each other's burdens and hurts and and love each other and minister to each other's needs and hold each other accountable. That really happens best in a small group Bible study. And that is why our church is such a champion for Sunday school and other small groups that meet throughout the week. Those things are vital to our spiritual health and growth. And that takes us to this third principle of discipleship, and that is teach. We invite them to Jesus, we involve them in a local church, and then we invest in them by discipling them. That's what Jesus was doing with the twelve every day. As they ate together and walked along the road together, He was training them not only to be disciples, but to make disciples. Now, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, again, you can't do this alone. And I encourage you to deepen your relationship with your fellow apprentices and deepen your spiritual growth by being a part of a small group. But beyond that, I want to encourage you to consider who God might want you to begin a discipling relationship with. Maybe it's someone at work that you can meet with before work or on a break or or right after work. Maybe it's somebody that you go to school with. Maybe it's a neighbor, a friend you can invite over to your home once a week or once every other week. They can be a Christian that's younger in the faith than you. They can be a non-Christian. Take a book, and and I can recommend lots of great books like Francis Chan's Multiply, and there are other good books. Or or use the Bible Project resources on our website and use that reading plan, those videos, and just read through the Bible together. It's not rocket science. The point is to meet with somebody and to spend some time in God's Word, spend some time in prayer, hold each other accountable, and be in that disciple-making relationship. You know, as a church, we've poured lots of resources into helping people on that inward journey of being disciples. We've done lots and spent lots of money and lots of time. But one thing that our revitalization team has discovered is that we've not done a very good job of training our people in that outward journey of making disciples. It's one of the things we've got to do a better job at teaching and encouraging each other to invite those who are far from God to know Jesus, to involve them in our church and invest in them so that they can grow in in apprenticeship with Jesus so they can go out and make more disciples. It's what we must be doing. The discipleship process isn't complete until you're making disciples who are then sent out to make more disciples. That's called spiritual reproduction. How do you think the early church grew from 120 people in the upper room on Pentecost Sunday to over a million believers in 70 years? How do you think that happened? Through the power of multiplication, through exponential growth. And that's what happens when every church member sees themselves as missionaries and every church member takes upon themselves the responsibility of making disciples. But when people think, well, that's the pastor's job. Or when people think, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Or when people think, well, I'm just going to pray and give so that someone else can do it. Then a church is only going to produce incremental growth through addition. Instead of exponential growth through multiplication. And you want to know how America got into the condition it's in today? You want to know how our culture has so quickly gone down the drain? Because the church has lost ground. Because we are not keeping pace with the population because we're trying to add disciples to the kingdom instead of multiply disciples. The kingdom of God will never grow and never expand through addition alone. One person asked, how did a poor carpenter from forsaken enslaved nation change the history of the world? 
The person answered, he used the power of multiplication. We must become a church of disciples who are making disciples because God doesn't call us to add, He calls us to multiply. Now all of this probably seems kind of daunting. Right? It's a monumental task. I admit it. Nothing short of the hope of the world rests on the church of Jesus fulfilling its mission. And you probably think, I don't fill up to the task, Pastor. I don't feel worthy or capable of going, proclaiming, teaching, and making disciples. I know how you feel. Every Christian, if they're honest, knows how you feel. We've all felt that way. We live in a dark world. And the truth is, none of us can change anyone. You can't make people's choices for them, and we can't save the world ourselves. And that's why Jesus, in this Great Commission, gives us two amazing promises. First and foremost, He promises us His authority. If you look back in verse 18, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Jesus' authority is the foundation of the Great Commission. Our King has absolute authority over everyone and everything. And y'all, that should give us boldness. As we go into the world as His ambassadors, even to a world that's, that's opposed to His rule and reign, Y'all, you don't go anywhere and you don't speak to anyone over whom Jesus is not already King. Amen? Therefore, we can go boldly and lovingly speak His truth into the lives of other people. We must unapologetically follow Jesus and make disciples because all authority on heaven and earth is His. But the second promise is such a sweet promise. He promises us His presence. His presence to the end of the world. You know, both Paul and Jesus warned us that we would face trouble and opposition and even persecution in this world for the sake of Christ. But while the opposition is real and scary at times, Jesus concluded with that great commission by saying, I am with you always. Jesus promised us His authority and His presence. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells us that the promise of His presence comes through the Holy Spirit. And you could even scratch this in as a number three promise. It's not in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but in Acts 1.8, the presence of His Spirit in us gives us what? Anybody know? Power. He says all power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will have His power to be His witnesses. Jesus promises us authority, presence, and His power. Just imagine Jesus physically by your side while you go and fight and pray and give and share. Because we do know that the world can and will someday bow down when Jesus returns. And so we must go to all people and share Jesus. We need to be praying with our co-workers and inviting our friends to church and praying for and giving and going on mission to the ends of the earth. This is our mission. This is God's will for us. This is the reason why we are here, both now and until Jesus Christ returns. And that will never change. It is my prayer that God will give each of us a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel, a deep and abiding burden for the lost. I pray that Jesus would give us an overwhelming confidence in His authority and His presence and power within us. This morning, do you need to become a follower of Jesus? You know, you can't make disciples until you are a disciple. You can't go and tell 
until you've come to see for yourself who Jesus is. Maybe this morning you need to come and give yourself to Jesus to become His apprentice, to become a follower, to receive His gift of new life. Maybe this morning you need to take that first step of obedience as a Christian and be baptized. You've never followed Jesus in baptism. You know you're a believer, you know you're saved, but you've never made that public proclamation of your faith. Maybe you can do that this morning. Maybe this morning you need to come as a baptized follower of Jesus and say, you know what, I've been worshiping here for a while and I know this is where Jesus wants me to grow. And this is where Jesus wants me to go. He wants me to be a disciple here and make disciples to the minister of this church. Maybe you can come this morning and unite with our church family. But maybe this morning God has convicted you about your prayer life, about your generosity, about your being a part of God's worldwide mission. Maybe God has convicted you about joining a small group Bible study. You've not been doing that. Perhaps this morning you need to pray for those that you know are lost. You need to ask God to give you a fresh burden for so-and-so. You probably already have somebody's face or name in your mind, and you know, I need to be sharing Jesus with that person. Maybe that person can be your one that Ben was talking about. I've been challenging us all to identify at least one person that we can invite to worship with us Easter Sunday. Have you been praying for that person? Have you been making those efforts to invite them to come? This morning, I pray we would all commit ourselves to walk that outward journey, to go and make disciples. Would you pray with me and then come as the Spirit leads you this morning. Father, we love you and thank you for the beautiful truth of your word and the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity, the clarity of this great commission. Father, you have saved us and called us to make disciples, to share the gospel with other people, to go and invite them to come to Jesus, to involve them in a, in a community of faith where they can be nurtured and they can be looked, at, looked after, they can grow and to invest ourselves in them by walking with them and spending time with them and encouraging them and praying for them as they follow You. God, forgive us for where we've dropped the ball in the past. Forgive us for where we've gotten our priorities so misaligned that this just isn't even on our radar. God, shape us and make us into a disciple-making people. Father, I pray Your Spirit would convict and speak this morning. And I pray that people would be obedient to your call. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.